Scarface. In the 1920s, the United States was reeling under the impact of prohibition. The sale of whiskey, wine, and beer was prohibited by law, but there were many willing to break that law. Gangsters took over. Crime flourished. Mobs fought each other for prime territories. There's no use arguing with this joint. Ziegler runs it himself. Step on it. And blood flowed in the streets. Welcome to another edition of the History Through Film podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Allen. And if you're a fan of the Godfather films, Scarface, Casino, Goodfellas, The Departed, or even The Sopranos, then I invite you to step back in time as we examine the granddaddies of these films, the 1930s gangster films, the ones that started at them all. I'll discuss three films that I use in my class. Two from 1931, Little Caesar and The Public Enemy, and 1932's classic original, Scarface. These three films are what I use when we discuss Prohibition and the Great Depression of the late 1920s and 1930s. And before I start showing these films, I ask my class three specific questions. One, how did social, political, and economic issues influence gangster films? And in turn, what were the various films' main message to society and audiences? Number two, how did pre-code Hollywood influence the production and success of gangster films of the 1930s? And I'll talk about what the pre-code Hollywood is, what those codes were, and how they affected the industry. And then number three, what are the common themes, motifs, and symbols used in gangster films that reflected society's attitudes towards crime and violence? So these are the three main things that we look at while studying films known as gangster films of the 1930s. Like I mentioned, the big three, the most famous films of that era, even though there were many, were Little Caesar, The Public Enemy, and Scarface. And these were categorized as what's known as social problems pictures. In other words, these were films that were dealing with society's problems. Other films may have had other plot points or storylines, but these ones specifically dealt with the violence that grew from Prohibition. And when I start these films, I do have a refresher for my students as to what led up to, of course, Prohibition and the Great Depression. Now remember, this is a non-traditional history class, so unlike an American history class, we don't dive too deep into things that were going on in the era that we're watching the films. From my perspective, I'm thinking that the students have already had this, knowing that they're juniors and seniors, but I do like to remind them what's going on before we tackle certain films from a certain era. What was happening in the 1920s and 30s? Well, of course, you've had Prohibition. Prohibition lasted from the 1920s until 1933. There was basically a combination of reasons of what led the United States to Prohibition. You had women's Christian temperance groups that worked to outlaw alcohol. 
Over the years, you had a number of states passing anti-alcohol laws, and World War I helped the cause when grain and grapes, which of course are used in most alcohol, was needed to feed the troops. So you wanted to conserve those and send them overseas rather than making them into alcohol and selling it here at home. The fight against alcohol also used bias against immigrants. In other words, like uh, to fuel anti-immigration feelings, you would uh, portray immigrant groups as alcoholics, various ones that were coming over here. And of course, you had other religious groups like Protestant religious groups and fundamentalists who favored a liquor ban because they thought alcohol contributed to society's evils and sins, especially in the cities. And by 1917, more than half the states had passed a law restricting alcohol. And then finally, of course, in the 18th Amendment, which banned alcohol, was proposed and ratified in 1919. And then also the Volstead Act enforced the amendment. And basically what prohibition outlawed was the sell, distribution, production of alcohol. But remember, it was still legal to consume alcohol. The fact is a majority of Americans still wanted to drink alcohol. And prohibition gave rise to a huge smuggling operations as alcohol slipped into the country through states like Michigan and the Canadian border. Newspapers followed the hunt for bootleggers or liquor smugglers, but government officials estimated that in 1925 they caught only 5% of all the illegal liquor entering the country. Many people also made their own liquor using homemade equipment and others got alcohol from doctors who could prescribe it as medicine. The illegal liquor business was the foundation of great criminal empires like Chicago gangster Al Capone's crew, who smashed competition, then frightened and bribed police and officials. 3,000 prohibition agents nationwide worked to shut down more than 30,000 speakeasies or illegal bars, and some cities even had more than that, and to capture illegal liquor and to stop gangsters. But as you can tell, 3,000 against 30,000 in one place and maybe more in others, there was no stopping the illegal activity of production and distribution of alcohol. Many Americans violated the laws simply just to have a drink. I also like to share with students the Kansas City connection with Prohibition. Of course, downtown Kansas City had a long history with not only famous criminals visiting, like Al Capone, but we were a stopping point in many ways from different various gangster and mob activities from perhaps Las Vegas to New York or Chicago. And one of the historic hotels we have in downtown Kansas City is the Riger Hotel. In fact, in the bathroom, you'll notice if you visit there, a plaque that says Al Capone pissed here. Al Capone was a frequent visitor of the Riger Hotel. And beneath the Riger Hotel is a modern-day speakeasy called Manifestos. Not only was it a speakeasy back in the day, but it still operates today. It's a very interesting and cool place to visit. It's almost like stepping back in time as you sit in a small, confined bar that has tables and uh, lighting that's lit very dimly with candles, and it really sets the essence of what a speakeasy might be like. In fact, uh, one of the little quirks that you do is you text uh, the company, the, uh, the Manifesto's bar, in order to get in. And so they kind of play along as if we're stepping back in time into a speakeasy. So, of course, along with 
Prohibition, you also had the effects of the Great Depression and how that influenced gangster films as well. Now, kind of in a short, condensed version of events, we know that prosperity of the 1920s led to overconfidence in production and demand of goods. But by 1929, consumer purchasing had drastically dropped. Overproduction caused nervous investors to sell large chunks of stocks with no one to buy them. Stock prices plunged, creating greater panic to sell, eventually leading to a crash. Investors had to sell at far less a price than purchased. Margin buyers lost everything. Banks couldn't collect on loans. Banks ran out of cash as people pulled out savings. And eventually the banks closed. And after the stock market crash, economic flaws helped the nation sink into the Great Depression, the worst economic downturn in history. Not only here, but this was also happening worldwide. The stock market collapse strained the resources of banks and many failed, thus creating greater anxiety. In 1929, banks had little cash on hand and were vulnerable to runs or a string of nervous depositors withdrawing money. A run could quickly drain a bank of all of its cash and force its closure. In the months after October 1929, bank runs struck nationwide and hundreds of banks failed, including the enormous Bank of the United States. Bank closures wiped out billions in savings by 1933. So this short list of events, I know it's condensed, but these events along with a hands-off government attitude of the business cycle by President Hoover led to a distrust of the government and also officials and authorities and law enforcement and basically these forces, these unseen forces that would have led us to the Great Depression. The common man society basically had a distrust of anybody that was in charge. And this is what led to the type of films that became popular in the 1930s, where Audiences wanted to see movies like gangster films where a common person would rise to power and wealth and fame, even if it was through crime. In fact, all types of movies were were also popular. You had some horror films and you had musicals, things like that. And uh, to put it in perspective, in 1930, there was an estimated uh, 110 million moviegoers going to the movies. It was very affordable and it was a great way to unwind and relax and escape from your everyday life. Uh, there were forms of other t entertainment, but you got to keep in mind, not like what we have today. And by 1933, kind of in the heart of the Great Depression, we still had 60 to 80 million people who managed to escape to the movies. Again, this was somewhat affordable. Even if you lost everything or most of what you had, you could still scrape up a few cents to go to the movies. And that's what people really clinged on to as far as a form of entertainment that we would call escapism. So this leads us to our gangster films and other films, of course, that were being challenged by the motion picture production codes, or also known as the Hayes Codes. These were named after Will Hayes, who uh, developed these codes. And basically what the codes were, were guidelines that the government was asking filmmakers to follow. But these codes were really not enforced until after 1934. So you have a period of time between 1929 and 1934, which are known as the pre-code Hollywood films. And basically this is where... Uh, the codes were really ignored, and movie theaters 
really push the limit and kind of challenge society as to what was decent, what was okay, and what was acceptable to show in their films. Now, the gangster films do fall into that category, and I'll talk about why they do uh, in just a little while, but I did want to talk a little bit more about these Hays Codes. Basically, they were censorship guidelines that were largely ignored by major studios until strictly enforced in 1934. Basically, racy films equaled ticket sales, and studios knew that, so they did try to push the envelope, like I said. Movie content was censored by local laws, maybe agreements between studios and theater owners, and popular opinion. So, really, there was no strict guideline like the motion picture rating system that we have today. It was basically like agreements between um, a theater owner and, and a film production company. Before the codes, films included sexual innuendos, violence, profanity, illegal drug use, infidelity, abortion, adultery, and all kinds of other taboo topics that were not uncommon in films at the time. But again, it's how much did they push the envelope on these topics? And to go along with our gangster films, what you'll see is that gangsters and criminals actually became portrayed as heroes or really anti-heroes. They were heroic rather than villains for their acts of crime. And this is where a crackdown really occurs after 1932 Scarface. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Of course, one argument by the film studios is that they were just portraying the truth of what was happening to society at the time. In other words, audience members really wanted to see films that were steeped in real news events. The headlines of newspapers spelled out the violence that was happening across the nation due to gangsters, alcohol cells, and prohibition. And arguments from the studio would say, hey, this is what society and audiences want to watch. We're just showing them a reflection of what's really happening. And perhaps there's a problem with what we need to do in order to stop this as a society. So as I introduce these films to my classes, again, we look at the common themes of gangster films. Number one, there's always an anti-hero element. An immigrant from the slums hungers for personal success, but society and the government has failed him. So he turns to crime for wealth, power, and prosperity, but inevitably has a downfall. Of course, there's inept law and government, and this is a reflection of, again, what the government was doing or lack of action that the government was doing to help society out of the Great Depression. So usually in these films, you'll see law enforcement that are powerless. They're inept. They can't do anything to stop the crime. They're unable to improve society and the depression. And in some way, this is a reflection on how law enforcement was unable to stop the gang-related violence due to prohibition. And then, of course, violence is a common theme. Realistic violence, Tommy guns, bullets, death that happens on screen, car chases, explosions. And again, this may seem pretty uh, tame by today's standards, but back then it was pretty shocking, especially the fact that some of these early gangster films were made right after sound films had uh, gone global. So you would see film uh, violence in perhaps silent movies, but the idea of hearing those Tommy guns going off was something that was shocking and new to audiences. And of course, 
Most of the violence was taken right from headlines. So let's get into our first film, 1931's Little Caesar. So as the story goes, Warner Brothers and the head of production, 28-year-old Daryl F. Zanuck, decided to make a gangster picture in 1930 after one of his close friends was killed by a bootlegger. So he purchased the rights to the novel Little Caesar by Chicago reporter W.R. Burnett for $15,000. W.R. Burnett had uh, written this book uh, basically after seeing the aftermath of Al Capone's order of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So it's generally considered the grandfather of gangster films. Little Caesar stars Edward G. Robinson in his main breakthrough role as Rico Bandello, and his best friend Joe is played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So the film follows the life of Rico Bandello and his friend Joe Massara. Rico is a small, mousy criminal who rises to fame and fortune by overstepping his bosses, a common plot point that you'll see in most of these gangster films. He soon gains wealth. He dresses well, uh, gets the wealth and the power as he oversteps and climbs the ladder to ultimate uh, success in his criminal activity. And basically, he seeks the ultimate power found in the American dream of self-driven success through crime. But like most of these films, ultimately, his rise from the gutter ends to his fall back into the gutter. Now, like I said, this is renowned as the godfather of all gangster films. It was the first to truly capture the sound of violence with its Tommy guns and uh, basic gunplay and shootouts seen on screen, but not really heard like this. Again, remember, this is just a few years after a sound film had gone uh, nationwide. So this film truly had an impact on audiences. They were able to see the violence, but also hear it for the first time. And that was really impactful. And uh, in fact, their story goes that this film was practically promoting crime and, and kids that would see the film would, of course, stand up and cheer uh, Little Caesar on. And this is where we get into that anti-hero mentality, because in these films, there really is no hero and villain. And if there is one, you would say that the gangsters are the heroes and the law enforcement are the villains. The basic plot of the film follows Rico and his close friend Joe as they move to Chicago. And there is a great opening scene in this film. Basically, the two drive up to a gas station. It's kind of a long shot. You see Robinson's character, Rico, go into the gas station. There's a holdup. There's a murder. And we know right away that Rico is just kind of a cold-blooded killer. And then we see the two arrive at a diner a little bit later. And it's interesting, There's a, uh, uh, in that scene, Robinson walks up to uh, the clock on the wall and turns it back about 15 or 20 minutes. And, um, you know, that's an interesting little take because obviously he's creating an alibi for himself. Uh, if somebody were to say that a murder, you know, occurred at midnight, well, at 11.45, they were seen in the diner. And this is where they have a conversation about uh, what they plan on doing for themselves. Well, Joe wants to go straight, and he meets a woman. Enrico, however, seeks a life of crime and joins the gang of Sam Vittori, rising to the ranks of boss in the crime family. There's a scene that reminds viewers of Al Capone where Rico, after gaining some wealth and power, is walking around the public, 
buying all the newspapers because his picture's on the front page. And as he's strolling through the neighborhood saying hi to everyone, there's a hit on his life. And that's where we hear the Tommy guns try to take him down. And then later he confronts the man who tried to kill him. Ernie, you're through. You hire these mugs, they missed, now you're through. If you ain't out of town by tomorrow morning, you won't never leave it except in a pine box. I'm taking over this territory. From now on, it's mine. You're growing, Rico. So this is what you've been after all the time, eh? I seen it in your eyes the first time I met you. You're no good, Rico. But if you think you can muscle in on me like you did on Sam Vittori, you're off your nut. I suppose you forgot all about Pete Montana, huh? How's Diamond Pete going to stop me? He may be your boss, but he ain't mine. Uh, Sam didn't feel that way about him. Sam knew who gave orders. Yeah, Sam was too soft. Diamond Pete could scare him, but I ain't no Sam. Sam is through. Now you're through, too. And as Rico's power increases, so does his paranoia and concern that his friend Joe knows too much about him. So Rico confronts Joe and warns him that he must forget about Olga, his girlfriend that he just met, and join him in a life of crime. Yeah, she's through. She's out of the way. That's what she is. You're lying. You wouldn't dare. I wouldn't, would I? I'll show you. Rico, listen. I ain't going to spill anything if that's what you're scared of. You think I want my neck stretched? Well, you know too much. I ain't going to take any chances. You're hanging around with me, see? No, I'm not. All right. You go back to that dame, and it's suicide. Suicide for both of you. Rico then threatens to kill them both, but he just can't go through with it. At which point, Olga, Joe's girlfriend, calls the police. And then that's where we start the downfall of Rico. Because once Rico is on the run, he goes into hiding, and the police have enough information to take down his empire. And this is where we get into kind of the fall of the American dream aspect from this film, because Rico then ends up in the gutter where he once came from. Uh, And what's interesting about this scene also is Rico is kind of the Great Depression bum that you might picture somebody that's homeless and down on their luck. The police coax him out of hiding by publishing in the newspapers and the radio that he's a coward. And of course, his big ego can't stand that. And so he is able to call the police and, you know, threaten them and let them know where he is for the ultimate showdown. I'll show them where they get a Hello? Huh? Hello, listen, I want Park 1000. Yeah. Well, I can't take it no more, huh? I'll tell that guy where it. Hello? Park 1000? Get me flat and get him quick. Sure. Just a minute. Tom. Oh, Tom. I may be screwy, but this sounds like Rico. Yeah? Flaherty speaking. Yeah, this is Rico speaking. Rico! R-I-C-O, Rico! Little Caesar, that's who. Hey, you're a big guy now, ain't you shooting your mouth off in the papers? So I ran out when it got hot, huh? You think I can't take it no more? Well, listen, you crummy flat-footed copper, I'll show you whether I lost my nerve and my brains. Thanks, Rico, old boy. The same to you and many of them. Come on, tell me some more. The sound of your voice does my heart good. Trace that call. Find out where he's phoning from quick. 
and the police are able to locate where Rico was hiding. And this is great because this is where uh, you'll notice you get that classic 1930s dialect, the shay, know what I'm talking about, if you know what's good for you. I love that. And uh, it's evident in most of these films. Uh, And so we get the police showing up at the location where Rico is going to uh, confront them for the last time. And this turns into one of the most famous scenes of the film. Rico is gunned down, and we get this short exchange between him and the police detective. Well, Rico, it looks like you and I are going to take that little ride together. Oh, yes. That soldier and little buzzard like you will never put any cuffs on me. You should have come out when I told you to, Rico. Ah. Mother of mercy. Is this the end of Rico? And that right there is considered the most famous line of the film. In fact, there's some controversy as to whether it was first written, Mother of God, is this the end of Rico? And then it was decided on as Mother of Mercy. Again, a little bit of that pushing the envelope. I guess they thought that Mother of God might be too offensive. I don't know exactly why, but... If you notice in Edward G. Robinson's voice, it's a, it's a question that he asks where he's almost baffled and, and shocked that his character is going to come to an end like this. But again, it's not an uncommon end in these gangster films where the gangster, in his eyes, may be going out on his own terms, not to be caught, captured, and cuffed and taken away. And uh, in his eyes, the gangsters... Uh, this is uh, more poetic for him to go out fighting. and uh, But of course, in this film, Little Caesar, it's not very heroic. And it reminds the audience that crime doesn't pay. And that's really the whole point. Um, one thing that I'll mention in just a little while is how these films would start off with disclaimers, almost like public service announcements to remind the audience that you may be watching a film, but don't forget that you're watching a film that's steeped in real headlines. The violence you see on screen may not be um, exactly real. It's going to look real, but remember that these are events that are happening outside the theater, possibly right now down the street or in another city. Little Caesar's story is lean and tight, and it actually runs at a uh, brisk 79 minutes. So it's a great one to check out as your first gangster film if you haven't yet seen any of these films. Uh, It's also interesting to note that uh, Edward G. Robinson was not the first choice for the director of the film, but the producers actually talked him into uh, giving him the lead role. And you'll also find that when we get to The Public Enemy with James Cagney, because that is also his breakout role. 
a couple of other little tidbits is um, when you do watch Little Caesar, it's interesting to see how the film is is brighter and the images are a lot more um, lighter and brighter when uh, Rico is rising to power. And then as his fall happens, you'll see that it takes place at night or mainly uh, darkly shot to show his fall. So that is Little Caesar, 1931. Let's now move into The Public Enemy. What you're hearing right now is the actual trailer for Public Enemy. It's interesting because there was no footage or dialogue from the film, but instead there was a gun coming at you as the audience There was doors opening that would show a criminal. And then, of course, there would be uh, gunfire and bullet holes that would uh, spell out who is starring in the film. And this was James Cagney's breakout role, much like Edward G. Robinson's breakout role, where it was in uh, Little Caesar. Um, James Cagney plays Tom Powers, but he was actually originally supposed to play Matt Doyle, who is Tom's best friend in the film. Uh, Matt Doyle is played by Edward Woods, and um, they uh, producers saw that James Cagney was an up-and-coming actor. He had had some bit roles in, in a few films, and in fact, he and Edward G. Robinson would star in a film that came out the same year called Smart Money. So this was the film that really put him um, in the breakout role that would start a career. Most people know James Cagney from Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, This was also a role for Jean Harlow, and she stars as Gwen Allen, who is going to be a uh, love interest of Tom Powers in this film, The Public Enemy. It, too, was based on a book. This one was called Beer and Blood by John Bright and Kubik Glossman. And this, uh, these were two men who witnessed some of Al Capone's rival gang violence as well. Now, it was brought to the screen by William Wellman. And although it's not based on a real-life gangster, for instance, um, some events of the film were based on actual events that were ripped from the headlines. And uh, like many other similar films and other gangster films of the era, it violated many production codes in Hollywood that were largely ignored by studios until 1934, where they started to really enforce those Hayes codes. Now, this film spans a time period of 1909 to 1920. And like I mentioned before, I like to use these films almost like primary source documents. And what's really cool about The Public Enemy is that you really get a feel and a look of what the 1930s was like. They have shots that kind of pan a city, and you see people and cars and businesses and buildings, and even goes into some cattle yards, which probably looked a lot like the downtown Kansas City, Kansas area, uh, when there were stockyards down there, I would imagine. Um, I grew up here in Kansas City all my life, so that's why I mentioned that. So really, the opening scenes, like I said, capture the look and the feel, and it's almost like a documentary. And uh, you really do get a sense of what it was like back in the 1930s. Now, I said that this film takes place, of course, kind of spans almost 11 years, but even though it was set part of it in 1909 and up until like World War I a little after, um, you know, it was obviously filmed in the 1930s. 
The story of the film is pretty basic. We meet Tom and his buddy Matt as young boys, kind of up to no good, stealing things and selling them on the street. And as the story progresses, they're kind of their older age with Cagney uh, portraying the role of Tom. And they get wrapped up into um, a gang member named Putty Nose, uh, who sends them on their first mission to rob a fur company. They're kind of set up there, and they they reluctantly kill a police officer. And then uh, they kind of get double-crossed by Putty Nose, who disappears and won't give them coverage uh, for the crime they just committed. And then the rest of the film is Tom rising through power with his buddy Matt. And uh, back home, you've got Tom's mother and brother Mike living in the house, the mom tries to keep the peace between Tom and Mike because Mike is kind of a more pure-hearted person who lives a straight life while he tries to convince Tom to maybe not get wrapped up in the crime that he's in. And while we're on the subject, I wish you'd try to stay home a little more. I got to work, ain't I? Oh, sure. Listen, Tom, I was in a place today and I heard somebody say something. What of it? Well, they were saying, it seems as though they were pointing a finger at you and Matt. Who was? What rat you saying anything about me? Now, I... take it easy. You're always hearing things. You'll get too much in your nose someday and you wonder how you got it. Well, for crying out loud, I heard a couple of guys talking about you. As much as to say you were in on some crooked work. What am I supposed to do, run? Well, you ain't asking me. You're telling me. And I don't know a thing, see? All I've got to say, Tom, is that you've got a good job now. You don't need these rats you're running around with. Well, I suppose you want me to go to night school and read poems. I've been hearing a few things myself. There's nothing to hear about me. Uh, that's all you know. You ain't so smart. Books and all that stuff don't hide everything. You're a liar, Tom. You're covering up. Covering up? For what? For you? Oh, you're nothing but a sneak thief. What did you say? You heard me a petty larceny sneak thief, a nickel snatcher, robbing a streetcar company. So Mike punches Tom in that scene, and then, of course, uh, Tom leaves angry. What's interesting about Cagney's portrayal in this film is how fast he talks. Um, He's really good at that. He's very animated. And uh, that was something that uh, audiences were also getting used to, is dialogue that was quickly delivered. But that's kind of the essence of his character. He's a fast mover. He gets things done. And that's kind of the whole point. Um, while, again, the nation felt like not much was being done to get us out of the Great Depression, some of these characters on screen were movers and shakers and people that really got things done, fast talking, fast action, and all that. So the public enemy, which is a little different than Little Caesar, is that it kind of amps up the violence, too. Um, There are some interesting things about this film. Uh, You know, the musical score is interesting because... There's really no score. All the music that you hear in the film is actually from, well, if they're at a club and there seems uh, is there's a band there, or if somebody's passing through the town and there seems to be music playing on the street or a marching band coming by. So it really does give you that sense of a documentary uh, style film. Um, it's something else that's interesting about Cagney's uh, character and of course, I wish you could see this, but you probably will picture it if I tell you, is his character kind of developed that kind of little friendly punch. Like, you know, you might walk up to your buddy and kind of punch him on the arm a couple times or the idea of kind of 
tapping their chin, you know, with your fist as if, hey, buddy, hey, pal. You know, um, in fact, Johnny Dangerously, that uh, Michael Keaton movie, which is kind of a spoof on gangster films, they they did a running gag with that where Johnny would kind of, uh, you know, hit people a little too hard. But, uh, you know, uh, James Cagney really came up with that for his character. Um, and it just kind of stuck. It became kind of like a stereotype or a cliche kind of uh, kind of uh, action. Now, I mentioned that this movie does amp up the violence. What's interesting, though, is most of the violence is seen off screen. In fact, everything that happens in this movie is is really seen off screen. You hear it happening as the camera is focusing maybe on another character um, or maybe panning through a room. And that is a really interesting choice because... Uh, you know, nowadays we're so used to violence in films and television show, but back in the day when people were watching this, again, you didn't, you kind of imagined what was happening off screen and, and uh, even hearing it like the gunshots or something like that and the moaning of somebody dying or the thump of the body hitting the floor really was a little shocking. Uh, and the fact that it was done off screen, again, it kind of left the imagination up to the audience. And uh, most of, you know, some of the killings in these films I mentioned were ripped from the headlines. There is one interesting scene where a character named Nels Nathan, who is a friend of Tom's, is accidentally killed in a horse riding accident. Well, this is based part on an Irish gangster named Dean O'Banion and a scene in which Cagney kills a horse that caused the death of a friend, Nels Nathan, Nathan, was inspired uh, by a similar real life event. Um, and it's kind of a interesting scene. You'll just have to see this movie and, and I hope you do. Now there is one scene that stands out above many in this film and it's known as the grapefruit scene. And this is a scene where Mae Clark, her character, who is Tom's girlfriend at the time is having breakfast where he sits down to join her. Go ready, Tom. Ain't you got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish that... Hey, you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. That I'd like a tire bucket to you and sink you. Maybe you found someone you like better. Now, at this point, he picks up a half a grapefruit that's on her plate and smashes it right into her face. There's a lot of stories about what really happened in this scene. One of the stories says that they rehearsed it, that he kind of told her what he was going to do, that he was going to fake almost hitting her in the face with it. But he really goes off and smashes her face with it. And she looks a little bit shocked in the scene. But I, I tend to believe that it was something that was planned. Um, but because of that scene and the success of this film, James Cagney would walk into some restaurants and clubs and things like that. And it was kind of a running gag for several years that people would have grapefruits waiting for him. So I'm sure he got pretty tired of that. But let's go and talk a little bit about the ending of this film. Now, there is a scene where his pal, Matt, is gunned down. In fact, that's the only killing that you actually see on screen as they uh, are holed up in a, uh, a buddy's apartment uh, for protection. 
And then after that, you see that uh, Tom is going to get revenge on the rival gang. And this is an interesting scene that takes place at night. It's dark, it's rainy, uh, and it's really a kind of a gritty scene as well as Tom, armed with a couple of pistols, is going to walk into the rival gang's hideout and headquarters. And again, you don't see the violence, you just hear it. And uh, shocking at the time, not so much today, but you can almost sense um, that the violent acts in these film, seen off screen, may have been a lot more brutal than uh, maybe something that would have uh, that we would have seen on screen. And you hear the gunshots and the moaning and a wailing of somebody inside that has been shot. And then Tom stumbles out and you see blood on his face and head as if he's been shot too. Stumbling around trying to catch himself. And you notice that he may be mortally wounded. And the once invincible Tom realizes that he isn't invincible and he's not unstoppable. And with those words, I ain't so tough, Tom tumbles to the ground and he's not dead because we do switch to a hospital where Mike, his brother and mother is there, Ma, and uh, the girlfriend of uh, Tom's is there also, or excuse me, Mike's. And this is where we get a little bit of reconciliation among Tom and his family. He apologizes for things that have happened, and the family's just happy to see him alive. And we think as an audience, well, you know, Tom's kind of paid his dues, and everything is going to be happy, and it will be a great ending. Well, that doesn't necessarily happen in the gangster films, because again, we have this common theme of rising to power, and then we have to have fall from grace. And we think that maybe Tom has had enough, but uh, we soon learn that when Mike and his mother go home, um, we get a visit from another friend of Tom's who says, hey, Tom has been uh, kidnapped from the hospital, uh, the rival gang getting revenge. And as Mike is nervously waiting to see what will happen to Tom, uh, we get this final scene, which by today's standards is still kind of shocking. Don't you like your dinner? What? I just ain't hungry, Ma. I'll get it, Ma. Yeah? This is Mike. When? You are? Fine. Ma, they're bringing Tom home. They are? When? Right now, he's on his way. Is he all right? Well, he must be. They wouldn't be bringing him home. Oh, it's wonderful. I'll get his room ready. I knew my baby would come home. Who called Mike? One of Patty's boys, I guess. Didn't say who. Oh. And as Mike awaits time to come home, we hear a knock at the door. All right. And as Mike opens up the door, 
we've got the shocking revelation that Tom, who is basically tied up and has been beaten in the same state that he was in the hospital, falls flat onto the floor, dead, in front of Mike. It's actually a pretty impressive face plant because you can tell it's actually James Cagney. So that is the end of The Public Enemy, and it ends with a title card that reminds the audience that this is not our problem, the filmmakers, this is society's problem. And once again, it's reminding the audience that what you have seen on this on the screen may be fictional in a sense, but it's something that we're dealing with right now today and a problem that needs to be handled. But who can solve the problem? Is it society, the government, the authorities? There's no correct answer in that. Uh, it, it almost puts a mirror in front of the audience's face and says, what are we going to do about this problem of violence that's stemming from Prohibition? Because Prohibition, uh, as an audience member in 1931, has not yet ended. So that leads us to probably the best of all three films, at least in my opinion, and the one that had the most impact on gangster films and the legend and the uh, mystique that they created, and that's 1932's Scarface. This is the story of Scarface Tony Carmonte, his lust for power, for fancy women. Don't work too hard. I just finish up tonight. Now I play a while. His drive to be number one. Next time I catch in a place like that again, I'll check you. You're telling me what to do. What I do is tell is my business. Starring Paul Muni as Scarface, and Vorak, George Raft, and Karen Morley. The crime scenes in this film are based on events that actually happened. Don't you know it's Valentine's Day? The film also starred Boris Karloff of Frankenstein fame. And Scarface is an interesting story because it took so long to get the movie made and actually released due to the fact that Howard Hawks, the director, and Howard Hughes, the producer, had fought the censor so much on this film. There's just an interesting laundry list of things that were changed or added or deleted or altered just to get this motion picture on the screen. First of all, they had to add a kind of a subtitle known as Shame of a Nation. So it was Scarface, but then it was Scarface Shame of a Nation because, again, you had to remind the audience that what they're about to watch isn't moral and isn't right. So they had to tack that on. Um, again, there's an apologetic kind of moral statement that's tacked on at the beginning of the film. Again, there's, uh, you know, kind of a disclaimer, what I call disclaimers that, you know, remind the audience that, hey, this is happening in society. You might like the film, but remember, this is real uh, news that's happening. The violence has to stop. Somebody has to solve it. Various cuts were made, erasures, voiceovers, changes were made throughout. Uh, Tony's mother in the film is always expressing disapproval of her son's behavior, calling him bad and no good. 
there are about 30 deaths in this fi- uh, in this film, both on screen and off screen. Uh, even though there's no blood, it's uh, pretty violent compared to the other two films that I've talked about. Um, there's these monologues and moralistic speeches that are not only in the prologue and epilogue, but you know the chief detective that's in the film, a newspaper publisher. These were scenes that were added to kind of remind the audience again uh, who's responsible for this violence? Who's responsible for Tony's behavior in the film? Is it society? Is it the government? Is that the lack of laws that aren't being passed to stop the violence that's associated with prohibition? So um, the public is even blamed from time to time for the existence of gangs rather than the law enforcement. Um, There's even a quote in the film that says, don't blame the police. They can't stop machine guns from being run back and forth across the state lines. They can't enforce laws that don't exist. Again, blaming society for not having the uh, laws passed that are needed. Um, And even the ending was changed. Uh, Not to give too much away in this particular film, because I really want you to watch it, but um, it is very similar, by the way, to the 1983 uh, Scarface. Of course, the 83 one with Al Pacino is set in the 80s with the drug, um, you know, background. This one, of course, is set be, uh, behind uh, the background of Prohibition. But um, what's interesting about the alternate ending is Tony is captured and he's put on trial. And there's this, again, a, a, a moralistic monologue by the judge talking about how crime doesn't pay. And then you see uh, the character of Tony being hung. Uh, now, the truth is, at the time, Paul Mooney was long gone from the production because this was tacked on at the very end. Uh, but in the original ending, you know, Tony kind of goes out in a blaze of glory on his own terms. Uh, still, a downfall for a gangster, which of course they have the rise and then they have the downfall. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And, um, you know, you also get a weird relationship between Tony and his sister, Seska. If you've seen the 1983 Scarface, you know that Tony in that film is very protective of his sister. Well, in this film, you know, for 1932 standards, it almost takes it a step further. There's there's kind of hints of an incestuous relationship among the two. It's never mentioned. You don't see it. But it's just kind of an uncomfortable relationship because he's so protective of her. Um, and again, that kind of went uncontested by the censors, which seems kind of weird by today's standards since there was so much uh, edited or censored in this film. And, of course, this movie is known to be a favorite of Al Capone. He was a huge fan. In fact, he actually bought a copy of the print so he could watch this film in his own uh, private home. Um, And some of the references and killings that you see in the film are actually based on real Al Capone events. Uh, Tony kills his boss, Big Louie, in the lobby of a club and Capone had uh, murdered his first boss. There is a rival gang uh, boss in the film who's murdered in a flower shop, and Capone's men had murdered somebody in a flower shop in 1924. Uh, Gaffney, who is the character played by Boris Karloff, 
uh, leads a caravan of cars in a drive-by shooting at Tony's restaurant. And there was that same thing had happened to Al Capone. Uh, Johnny Lovo, who is Tony's boss in this film, Tony steals his girlfriend, Poppy, uh, attempted to get Tony killed in a car chase. And again, there was an ally of Al Capone that tried to murder him. And uh, of course, this film also kind of depicts the St. Valentine's Day Massacre um, that is uh, famous for Al Capone as well. And what's also interesting about this film is there is a motif that reoccurs throughout the whole film, and it, it is a motif of an X. In fact, the scar on Tony's face is an X. You see it in the title card at the beginning of the film, Scarface, and behind there's an X. But every time somebody dies in this film, there is an X somewhere in the scene. It's really fun to watch and to look for that. Uh, something you can do when you check out this film, and I really hope that you do. In fact, the film The Departed with Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Wahlberg, and Matt Damon, and Jack Nicholson by Martin Scorsese, as an homage to Scarface, they actually use the X motif in that film as well. So to wrap up everything that I've talked about, I know this has been kind of a long podcast, but what I do with my class then is we look back at some of the symbolisms and the themes and motifs that were encompassing all these films. As I mentioned before, all the films except for Little Caesar had this foreword, kind of this title card that would explain things like, hey, we the makers of this film are just showing the violence that's happening in the real world. Don't blame us. This film is not inciting violence. A lot of times you would feel that that was tacked on just to kind of protect them from the censors. In fact, Warner Brothers argued, again, that, that I've mentioned before, that their films were just snapshots of current society. They were providing a public service by showing society's ills fueled by prohibition and real violence by gangsters. Um, others, of course, felt that these films glorified the criminal life and made heroes out of gangsters which I guess in a sense, they were the anti-heroes of the film and were popular. Uh, you know, again, that, that brings us to some of the characters like Little Caesar and Rico and Tom from Public Enemy and, and Tony from Scarface. They're anti-heroes and not very likable killers, but however, they appealed to the Depression-era audiences of the 1930s, and they were seen as contemporary heroes. You know, why, why is that? What satisfaction did audiences get from these characters? Well, you could argue that audiences admired the toughness of these characters who defied the system to become wealthy, powerful, and respected. These anti-heroes were fast talkers, fast movers, and took problems into their own hands, while Depression-era audiences felt the government was motionless to solve society's problems. When unforeseen forces threw them into the Depression, they just wanted to blame some somebody and something, and these characters in these films were taken... Uh, you know, life into their own hands and improving it. Audiences also experienced the double satisfaction, you could say, of participating in the gangster's life, kind of vicariously as an audience member, while seeing violence turn against the gangster in the end. Again, uh, crime doesn't pay, so the gangster in the end had to pay as well. Something that's also interesting in most of the films, particularly The Public Enemy, is the law enforcement is almost invisible. Now, in Scarface and in Little Caesar, you do see a rival police chief or detective that stands up to the gangster, but 
Really, there is this theme of a powerless or inept law enforcement that's unable to stop the gangsters' uh, rise to power. In fact, one plot point of Scarface is Tony gets a hold of a Tommy gun. And once that happens, then he's able to use that against rival gangs. He's able to possibly out uh, arm the police and the authorities and so forth. So as I mentioned earlier on in this podcast, that is a common theme is the powerless or inept law enforcement. Symbols. All these films deal with guns. Guns are obviously a sign of power in these films. Again, Tony's use of a Tommy gun is emphasized in Scarface. Cars and clothing. There's a great scene in Public Enemy where Tom Tom is being fitted for a new suit. And it's kind of a comedy comic scene with the the tailor. Uh, But again, cars, clothing, the guns. These were symbols of power and wealth in all these films. And then, of course... As I mentioned earlier, there are some scenes that have monologues where, again, kind of the moral voice of the films are trying to state that what's happening in society and in these films, somebody has to stand up to, somebody has to improve, somebody has to try to change the violence and what's happening in the real world. In Public Enemy, you could argue that it was Mike, Tom's brother, who's kind of like the moral voice. Um, but these films, it's pretty evident that some of these scenes were added to kind of remind the audience uh, something needs to be done. So, um, you know, to wrap everything up, these films are very much worth your time. Check them out. If you are a fan of the Godfather films, The Departed, Casino, Goodfellas, or even The Sopranos, please check out these films. They are very much worth your time. I like to use them in class to emphasize the 1930s, perhaps a different aspect of it with Prohibition, but I really feel that these films capture the essence of the 1930s life. Like I said, almost like primary source documents, you can see what was happening at the time through these films. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at History Through Film. That's History, T H R U, Film. You can find us on Facebook also, History Through Film. We are on iTunes, we're on Podomatic. Please reach out if you have questions. You can tweet them to me, uh, maybe suggestions for films and things like that. And I hope this audience grows and you guys are getting something out of these podcasts. But until then, we'll see you later. Thanks for joining us. (music) 